Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much for joining us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, on the board of the National Council on Aging, and is the past board chair there. And we have a lot of fun on these programs, bringing you as much information as we can to assist caregivers, their families, and others. Oh, thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here, and I hope other... Th- People enjoy, you know, some of the weird things that we research from week as, to week as, as much, much as, as we, we do. do. I don't know if they do or not. I don't but know. That, you know, if you don't, tell us because we don't know it. Now, Dr. Sharon Luce is going to join us in a few minutes talking about stress busting. And uh, you're going to be fascinated about that work. I had to share with you, and I saved it for now. CNN did a segment the other day on research being done with naked mole rats. With naked mole rats. And, and they had them on a video. I, oh my gosh! I I only read about naked rats because looking at them is so incredibly scary. They look cute in this video. They looked cute. They I've looked never cute. seen a picture where they looked cute. Well, they were doing stuff. Well, look up. So for you, if you're listening, we're not actually going to talk about naked mole no, we're rat not. research. But um, my son, I did not know, was telling me about a cartoon, or or no, it wasn't my son. It was somebody else. Somebody was talking about there's a cartoon when the cartoon had a naked mole rat in the cartoon. They're big. They're, you know, they're, they're coming back. They're everywhere. They don't, what, what, why we talk about them is they never get cancer. Exactly. Ever. They never get cancer. And we try to and figure out why. And they're wacky looking animals and please look them up and then you'll want to know more about them too because Now speaking so of that, you mentioned a son. Uh, you found some research that shows that marriage may be good for our hearts. Well, this. Despite the stress. Despite the stress, yes. This comes from the New York Times. Um, and so it's a study of 2 million people. Sometimes we have studies that have like 24 people, 300 people. This is a combination of 34 studies, 2 million people, ranging from the United States, Britain, Japan, Russia, Sweden, Spain, Greece, eight other countries. Big number. Big numbers. And what they found, bah, 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 is that um, people who are married— Uh, versus those that are unmarried, and that means either never married, widowed, or divorced, were 42% more likely to have some form of cardiovascular disease. So those that have have never been or are currently not married, 42% more likely to have cardiovascular disease, 16% more likely to have coronary heart disease, and the unmarried also had a 43% increased likelihood of coronary heart disease death. And 55% increased de- uh, risk of death from stroke. Um, and the stroke risk, that, that's interesting. That one increased for unmarried and divorced, um, but not widowed. So I don't know what's going on there. That's, you women live longer than we do. But those are really large numbers. Those yeah. are very, very large numbers. So go get married. Well, and, so, if yes, you're not. So go get married. They don't know why this is. So here's the end of the story. The end of the story is they don't know why. 
the married people are showing all of this less disease, this better health. So they do this huge epidemiological study, and they they, they don't, don't know, know why, but they do know that there's something there. They but they've still got to do some more study. It didn't make any. It was beneficial for men and women. Uh, they don't know why, but maybe it, maybe this goes back to socialization. So maybe if you boil this down, this is having somebody to talk to or yell at, you know, twenty four seven that lives with you. Um, so I don't know if it's I don't know if it looks at living together but not married. So stay tuned. Maybe we'll find another study. But right now it looks like married people are healthier and may live longer. That's a good thing. So there you go. Assuming you're married. And Assuming you you're married. But you know what else helps? dancing and you dance you've been a flamenco dancer well you know i started i'm i'm i danced a little bit in high school but i was not one of those child ballerinas so i'm some i really started dancing seriously as an adult which means i have zero flexibility (laughs) um but this was from next avenue talking about a a woman in new york who has helped start all of these dance classes for the elderly um at no charge and and just seeing what difference it makes in the participants and so as somebody who likes various forms of dance not just flamenco i'm now a a zumba addict i love doing zumba uh and i've done i've done the ballet i just am terrible at it and it's so painful that's why i kind of gave it up um but what they're saying is there are benefits to dancing at any age. You know, immediately you recognize that it's making a difference in your life. You, you think about it. You're looking forward to your next class. So um, I, I think that gives you something to look forward to would be one of the things. Sure. Uh, you know, in this article, they talk about touch. In, the, in those classes, they deliberately arrange some partner dancing. And they're talking about the healing power of, of just, you know, touching somebody's hand, of making that human connection. Like ballroom dancing? Like ballroom dancing, country western dancing, line dancing, um, where sometimes people will kind of hook up and, right. and, and dance. Little Cotton Eye Joe. So, little Cotton Eye Joe. So there's that. Um, rediscovering the joy of dancing. Like there are a lot of people who are older that may have been that child ballerina. And they haven't danced since then. But, you know, it's in there. I, I can go into a class. If, if you walked into a class and you did any sort of ballet movement, you would immediately be able to see everyone in the room who had had ballet previously in an introductory kind of a class for suit. older people. It's in there. You know, their bodies were trained at some point, and it comes out. So that's always fascinating. You know, and, and then there's some other research that talks about how good it is for your brain. Like dancing is one of the best things because let's think about what's going on here. We are moving, so we're physically moving, legs, arms, heads, hands, and flamingo, even your fingers, but you're also doing choreographed steps. So now you're trying to remember choreography. That's a lot of challenge for your brain. It's different every time you take a class. So it's challenging, and that's good for you to challenge your brain as well as to challenge you physically. Sure. You know, and then the last few things are you meet new friends of all ages when you dance. I was painfully the oldest, uh, worst person in my ballet classes for a number of years. Dancing with teenagers in tights um, certainly makes you look <laughs> ginormous. <laughs> You're not a teenager in tights. Um, but now, uh, you know, in flamenco class and some of the other ones, you know, I, it, you you connect with other people. Um, and And then there's all of that weight loss, balance, strength coordination and for those who decide they want to perform yay for you i don't want to perform but some people also find that enjoyable is showing off now we have our seven-year-old daughter reagan in ballet and she loves it absolutely loves it 
Well, which is interesting. Yeah. We're not making her go. She, she just We, we set her up for it and we took her and she loves it. Well, you know, and like in my Zumba class, there's men in the class. My husband takes the class. Um, he's never done any other kind of I've dancing. I've seen Ernie do Zumba. You've seen him do Zumba. You know, he's enthusiastic. He, he is very. He's enthusiastic. He's very enthusiastic. And that's all you need is a little enthusiasm. So, now, you for know, those who don't know, Zumba is great heart exercise because man you are pumping blood well yeah it's like it's almost a, co- a combination of um you know latin dancing and aerobics right. sort of yeah, yeah so it is it's very it's very yeah it's tough it's tough it's tough but you know you gotta you can work your way up to it so wow. i don't know it's, it's just nice to know and if you're a caregiver you know i would recommend if, if there's any way that you can escape and do just a little bit of dancing i can't think of anything else where you get that exercise that socialization um, and a little bit of creativity to let yourself go uh, i would recommend it check out the wellmed uh, senior centers because all, uh, almost all offer your, zumba classes or your ymca your golds gym your local church may even have some cool so go out and zumba go out and zumba go out and dance I like find that. something Talk to me about belly fat. Is it good? <laughs> this should be self-obvious. This is this good is, or bad. I was going to say this is what you don't want in that leotard when you're dancing. So you know, we all know what the muffin top looks like, right? We've all looked in the mirror and seen that. It's probably at we some have. point in our lives, or a beer belly. Um, you know, th- what they're finding is that that type of fat, that shape, not overall overweight, but just uh, all of you're carrying all of that extra weight around your stomach. Um, there was a study, again, half a million people in the United Kingdom from age 40 to almost to age 69, so basically age 70. And they looked at that hip-to-waist ratio where you're carrying all of that belly fat. Um, and what they found is that people with a, a big waist circumference compared to their hips had 10 to 20% greater risk of heart attack and this is for women, than just people who were overweight all, you know, all over, just generally overweight. Wow. It's that carrying all that fat. Because think about where that fat is. It's, that, it's the kind of fat that is coating all of your internal organs. So it's really, you know, kind of, it's visceral fat. It encases your internal organs, and it, and it is highly associated with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So it's just not good for you. Men, it's not quite as bad. It's only 6% uh, higher risk in men. But, you know, the focus shouldn't be on whether you're a man or a woman. It should be really right. on, A, what are you doing to control your weight? B, you know, are you exercising because, you know, take up the dance. That, that's the key is to, to keeping the weight off and keeping your weight in check. Just because you're getting older, just because you're caregiving, you know, taking stock. How am I doing? Am I starting to get the muffin top? Am I getting my exercise? You know, taking care of your health. We talk about it. How many, probably every week we talk about taking care of your health. Um, but when you don't take care of your health, it can have some negative consequences that you're going to live with after you finish caregiving. You know, it's interesting. That fat also uh, very often triggers acid reflux because of the pressure on your stomach and your esophagus. Well, and acid reflux causes other problems. Sure. So it's kind of like a chain reaction Absolutely. To, to, of things that, that, can, that can go wrong. So, so if you got it, try to get rid of it. Yes, yes. When, okay, Isn't ahead. that why God made liposuction? I, well, it may be. It may be. Um, so, 
Yes, belly fat, muffin top. Get rid of it. Yeah, you got to fight that. Talk to me a little bit about inherited high cholesterol. Well, I was just reading about this, and I was thinking maybe we should have somebody either on your the Wellman Radio Radio. show uh, to talk about it. So this is this is familial hypercholesterolemia. I said that slowly because I'm not sure I'm saying it even right. But it's when you inherit really super high cholesterol. And like some other conditions, this one is not treated as often as probably it should be. So if you've inherited high cholesterol, which tends to run in my family, um, you can be like three times, your cholesterol can be three times higher than it should be, than higher than normal recommended. And what they found is that although 80% of people who had this familial high cholesterol were aware of it, only tw- only 25% um, were being treated for it. Really? Yeah. So taking any drugs at all. And what happens when you have super high cholesterol is you are a, a prime risk for heart attack right. or stroke. Right. Um, and I can think of somebody uh, that I know that had the super high cholesterol, never got it diagnosed, died in their 50s. Uh, from a heart attack. Were they not seeing And it? all they needed was that cholesterol-lowering drugs. They Every didn't PCP need it. should look at that. Yeah, they didn't need it. Got to so stop you right there. Sharon Lewis is up next. Dr. Lewis talking about stress busting. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zerniel on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Cora Juke is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thank you so much for being with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We're delighted to have you on board. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And we welcome back a guest we have had on before, Sharon Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a specialist in helping folks deal with stress, a stress-busting program that uh, she has put together in WellMed Medical Management and WellMed Charitable Foundation work with her as well to deliver that program to folks who need the kind of help it offers. Uh, Sharon says she began her career as a nurse immunologist specializing in renal failure with an interest in psychoneuroimmunology, uh, which is how the mind affects the body. And from there, she has moved very deeply into dealing with stress. And Sharon, speaking of stress, thanks for joining us from New Mexico, where you told us it's hot and your air conditioning went out. Yeah, it sure did. So you need a stress-busting class or you can self-administer to yourself there? No, I think we need stress-busting programs for people suffering from home repairs. (laughs) From home repair, any kind of construction. I don't know. I think that's probably one of the most stressful situations you can have is when something doesn't work or you're trying to do anything to your home. Or to get the remodeler back to finish the work. 
Oh, forget that. Yeah, <laughs> true. yeah they're not going to show up. Well, you know, this is such a privilege for me because I have known uh, Dr. Lewis. I We admired her work from afar years ago um, and then had the privilege of working with uh, Dr. Lewis at the Wellman Charitable Foundation, and she developed our uh, stress-busting program. We say our because we've been doing it together for so long. Uh, and um, Sharon, talk a little bit, you know, about how you got interested and started in, you know, this work of stress management. Well, Ron mentioned the term psychoneuroimmunology, and um, I was very interested in how the mind affects the body, and we wanted to study stress, and I couldn't think of a another group of people that were going through, you know, chronic stress, you know, as much as family caregivers do. And so we started to look at what happens to the immune system when somebody's chronically stressed. We did biofeedback. We looked at various immune parameters. And then the reverse of that is that we wanted to know what happens when these stressed individuals learn how to relax. And so we did some pretty extensive studying to, to look at both the effects of stress as well as relaxation. And, and then that... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, and then well, what started off as a research project slowly evolved into a community-based project for family caregivers. Well, and so talk a little bit. I've always thought was fascinating was how did you... How did you measure stress? I mean, you didn't just ask people, do you feel less stressed? You could actually um, physically tell a difference. What was it that you looked at to determine if somebody was indeed stressed or had less stress? Well, we did a variety of things. The first thing we had is people fill out paper questionnaires measuring such things as stress, depression, caregiver burden. And then we did biofeedback parameters where you could actually measure muscle tension, uh, skin temperature, which would be physiological responses to, to stress. And then we measured various things in the immune system. We actually drew blood and looked especially at one type of immune cell called the natural killer cells. And when a person is stressed, the function of the natural killer cells goes down. And so we had a lot of extensive research base for our program. And so this, and this was years ago, this was before anybody was talking about stress, but that, that feeling of fight or flight, um, that, you're con- that you're being chased by a wild animal. So it, that's not imagination. When you're really stressed out, it actually is taking down your immune system. Well, I think acute stress is good. I mean, when you, you know, you're at a red light and you're ready, getting ready to go and somebody runs a red light, um, you don't calmly say, oh, <laughs> you know, so that response, that acute stress is a good response. But our bodies were never meant to have acute stress seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And that's what family caregivers have. So slowly those acute stressors become chronic stressors, and and the body can't handle that. And so um, talk a little bit about the stress-busting program. When you were putting it together, what what elements did you include in the program? Well, we asked input from family caregivers in terms of what did they want. 
And one of the first things that they said is that they needed to learn coping strategies and stress management techniques. They also wanted education, and they wanted to meet in a setting of other family caregivers. And so what we did is we combined a program including education, support, stress management, and in that environment, caregivers could help each other problem solve. Now, walk us through in just a minute uh, what the stress busting program helps people deal with and and what kind of activities uh, do you get them involved in. But before you do that, I want to remind people who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, talking with Sharon Lewis, a Ph.D. doctorate in nursing, and she is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, which is a pretty prestigious organization. So talk to us a little bit about, Dr. Lewis, what goes into that stress-busting program? Well, we ask caregivers to commit to nine weeks, and we meet for 90 minutes a week for nine weeks in the setting of a support group. The groups are facilitated by two facilitators, and caregivers are given about a 180-page handbook workbook and it's divided into nine chapters to correspond with the nine weeks. During the class session, we focus a lot on education, interaction, problem solving. And then at the end of every session, we spend 15 minutes focused on learning a stress management technique. So we talk about topics like stress, stress and relaxation, coping, uh, dealing with the challenges in your life, how you can think more positively, um, learning to take time for yourself. Those are some of the topics we deal with. And then we have a whole list of stress management techniques that we teach, including breathing, imagery, meditation, art, aromatherapy, massage. Um, I'm missing something here. (laughs) Journaling. Journaling. So caregivers get a whole toolkit of stress management techniques that they can use whenever they need it. Now, what I love I love about the program is that combination that you just talked about where the people that are the caregivers are getting the education, they're they're that problem solving and then those actual techniques. So at the end of the 9 weeks, they've learned eight different techniques that they've actually practiced. And so if they don't like one, like maybe um, they think that uh, aromatherapy is not their thing, uh, but they like the journaling or they like the breathing exercises, they can pick and choose because they've tried them out. Yeah, we just finished a group today. One of our caregiver groups ended the ninth week. And when I was asking them what they liked best about the program, one of the things they said is just the variety. And I think that's really critical because you can't journal while you're driving, but you certainly can practice your breathing while you're driving. So you've given them a toolkit. Yes, they have a toolkit. I mean, you can actually visualize this as a toolbox with putting all these little strategies in there. Now, you began the stress-busting program uh, for caregivers caring for people uh, with dementia, with Alzheimer's. Uh, Are you expanding that to include others? Because no matter what you're doing as a caregiver, no matter what the care recipient struggles with, there's a lot of stress. I'm not exactly sure when we started. Five or six years ago, 
many caregivers approached us and said, well, I take care of somebody with a stroke. Uh, my husband has Parkinson's. What about us? And at that point in time, we took our dementia program and adapted it to be applicable for anybody with chronic illness. And the program that I'm really trying to get really going now, especially in New Mexico where I, where I live, is the one focused on chronic illness. And just to give you an example, in the group that I had today, we had somebody, a caregiver, somebody with Parkinson's, another mother, she's taking care of a son with schizophrenia. We have uh, a wife taking care of a husband with dementia. Um, we have another lady who's taking care of her husband who's got multiple sclerosis. Um, so that just gives you a feeling that our program is very applicable to any type of caregivers. So do those, there's so many different types of conditions they're dealing with, you know, do those people get along? Do they, do they see themselves in the other person even though they're dealing with different diseases? You know, the feedback that I've gotten over the past year has just been amazing. We focus on caregivers. They see themselves as caregivers. It doesn't matter what their loved one's diagnosis is because the focus is on them as caregivers. And I think they have really benefited from seeing caregivers of other diseases. And it's really, they've repeatedly told me this has been so beneficial to see what the lives of other caregivers are like. Well, and in the the very first lesson before we go to break, talk a little bit about that very first session. What's that focus when you first bring these caregivers together? Well, in week one or session one, we really want the caregivers to tell their stories. And at that point in time, there's bonding going on between the caregivers because they can start to identify common elements in other people's lives. But for many caregivers, they've never told their story. They've never had an opportunity to share what they're going through. And I think that experience in week one is so valuable because it's usually a time of starting to unfold all the stress that's going on. And week one is always, you know, it's very exciting just to be able to get these people together and let them know that there's some help for them. Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. She's Dr. Sharon Lewis. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host. Stick with us. Well, if you or someone you know struggles with stress, if they're a caregiver or stress in any other line of work or daily activity, we're talking about a program that has had tremendous results with Dr. Sharon Lewis, who put the program together uh, with the help and support of their partner, WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Dr. Sharon Lewis about the program and how it works. How did WellMed get involved? Well, um, we heard uh, Dr. Lewis give a presentation in Austin to the Aging Texas Well Advisory Committee for the governor, and we're fascinated by um, her work. And at that point, uh, Dr. Lewis had only been doing that in the clinical setting. So we got together and applied for a grant from the Administration on Aging, which is now the Administration on Community Living, uh, and applied to 
it wasn't it, it was a translation even though they didn't call it that translation but we we changed the program to a community program so instead of being offered at the health science center um, it was offered to our caregivers out in the community and we said do we get the same results that um, they got in the clinical setting and as it turned out the results were very good um, so you did evidence-based research so on what it you was, were doing. So it was the evidence, was the, you know, can we maintain that evidence base and that same outcome in the community setting? Uh, and, and from there, um, uh, Dr. Lewis has gone on to, to, to develop the program for chronic illness. Uh, we've had it translated into Spanish, um, and actually that's a, a cultural adaptation. So um, on, on that note, Sharon, can you talk a little bit about what were the considerations for dealing with caregivers um, that may be primarily Spanish-speaking, uh, caregivers of different ethnic groups, what's important about thinking about um, you know the cultural adaptation of a program? Um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm not the best expert on that, but um, the person who was primarily involved in doing the cultural adaptation as well as the language piece of it one of the things that she emphasized is that Hispanics who are Spanish, primarily Spanish-speaking, they need to be shown that they're cared about and that we might need for like week one a little bit longer time for them to tell their stories. The other thing that's interesting is that in Spanish, there's no equivalent word for burden, caregiver burden. And if you just translate burden into Spanish, it comes off like a load, you know, like a physical load that you have to carry. And Hispanic people don't necessarily see caregiving as a burden or, you know, a physical load. The other thing that's interesting in Spanish, there's not a really good translation for the word stress. And we can keep this story going for a long time about just translating words. So I think it's a sensitivity to both the language as well as the cultural needs of, of Hispanic, Spanish-speaking people. And well, um, Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I was going to say, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's fascinating, and it's something that, you know, just you're saying that what may be a burden or seen as a burden um, and stress in an, in a more English-speaking population, you know, you might have people just staring at you um, saying, you know, that's, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, so that, you know, we're not communicating um, if we haven't taken into consideration the way they see, and I know Dr. Lita Revelo-Fletches, who did the translation, does talk about uh, the difference between um, a, a Hispanic population where they may see this as just this is something that they do. It's it it's not a burden. It's not a load. Right. Yeah. So I mean, those things have all been included in the cultural adaptation, um, and you know we're continuing to gather data to see uh, the effectiveness of of the Spanish. So. Um, but you've also worked. You're in New Mexico, and and you've also worked with. Um, some of the tribal organizations with the Native American population as well, have you not? Yeah, we've done some training for group facilitators among, um, well, both the Navajos and the Pueblos. And there's 19 Pueblos in, in New Mexico. And we have, um, we're still gathering data and all that and very excited that 
the doors sort of to the stress busting program have been very open wide to the Native Americans. Well, I think it's fabulous that the program has meaning um, to a variety of populations, uh, and uh, I think it, it speaks well uh, to the way that the program is put together with the facilitators because each group sort of takes on the characteristics of that group um, because it's not, it's not a, there's not a, a set hard curriculum where people are instructing you it's we're drawing out the experiences of the caregivers and talking about them. She's our co-host, Carol Zernil, and we're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Dr. Sharon Lewis. I'm Ron Aaron. If you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air as we talk about the stress-busting program for family caregivers and others, uh, Sharon, I'm reminded when you talk about cultural differences, uh, we interviewed uh, several years ago now uh, a former WellMed physician who was Vietnamese, and uh, he, he was hoping against hope that his mother would choose to come live with him in her final years, and he and his brothers and sisters were all competing to have her move in uh, and compare that to what you see in many other uh, groups, Caucasian, for example, in many families, the last thing they want is mama moving in. Huh. That's an interesting question because we were in Italy some years ago, and my husband's best friend's mother-in-law had dementia, and we asked what was going to happen to her. And he said, well, we're just going to take care of her here in our home. They don't have nursing homes in Italy, you know. Mm. And um, one of the things I think in predominantly white populations is this whole struggle of where do we, where do we put mom? Um, we don't want her in our house. She might be disruptive, you know, and it's a very hard decision when it comes to those transitioning periods. Um, you know, culturally in America, we've got a whole different set of values from many of the you know, other cultures, you know, like Japanese, Vietnamese, even the Native Americans. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's fascinating to, to think about how, the, how, how many differences there are, and then it's, we also have to think about how many times we don't adapt and we don't think about um, the differences in culture. The, the program, you've also developed a program for professional caregivers. Now, how does that program for people who are paid to be caregivers differ from the program for family caregivers? Well, while we were having our family program, a lot of the people that were sort of superficially or peripherally involved said, what about us? You know, we're stressed too. And so I developed a, a program that's called Combating Compassion Fatigue and Burnout. And it's a one-day program for any caring professionals. Um, and basically we go through topics like, you know, compassion fatigue, burnout, um, and how to change my attitude about the work environment. And then in the professional program, they're also taught the same stress management techniques that we're teaching the family caregivers. Now, for those who may not know, what is compassion fatigue? <laughs> it's it's an extreme form of burnout where people that are in a caring role become so burned out that they really can't function. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but what can happen with compassion fatigue is they lose their effectiveness both at work, professionally, and personally. 
And it develops because they care. Sometimes maybe they care too much. That's really interesting because you would think caring would be a really positive attribute of especially healthcare providers' uh, arsenal of working with patients. Well, the thing is, especially that with caregivers, you know, I'm talking about professional caregivers right. that work in long-term care facilities, what's the reward? People don't usually leave long-term care facilities. They don't get better. They die. So even though I, they die, right. yeah. Even though I'm providing the best care I can, does it make a difference in that person's life? You know, and, and that's one of the topics that we talk about in the professional program. Um, where, where do you get your rewards from? And well, one of the, I just want to make one other comment about why I think these programs are effective. We cannot change the fact that somebody has a wife, a husband, a parent with dementia or any other chronic illness. We can't change that fact. But we, what we can do is help the family caregivers change their perception about how they react and respond to that person. And a lot of the things that we do in the family program is talk about perception. Uh, and that's such an, an important lesson. It's one of my favorite um, lessons from the program and the and the pictures that go along with it. You know, in my own life, I can think about when my, my son was born, and I've told this story before, my mother came to help me take care of the new baby. Um, and she was driving me absolutely insane. It just seemed like we were bumping into each other all the time, and I'd never been a mother, and it just it was crazy. And I started thinking, you know what? My mother is here to help me. She is a blessing, and she wants to help me. She, she's doing this because she loves me. And then I started looking at everything that she was trying to do, and I just let her do it. And after that, I didn't want her to leave. I when the time came for her to go back. <laughs> you had you know, a 24/7 nanny. She was the nanny. best thing since sliced bread. But it was all in my attitude. I stopped competing with her. You know, I let her do what she did best um, and got out of her way. Uh, but it was me that needed to change. She didn't do anything any differently. It was me that needed to change the way I was thinking about Interesting. it. Interesting. Now, in your work, Sharon, a lot of what uh, you do, and as I hear you talk about it, really grew out of your early interest in uh, uh, how our brains affect uh, our stress and our health. Uh, I'm reminded here in San Antonio, probably before you came to live here, Dr. Harry Croft, a well-known local psychiatrist, uh, had a show that ran on uh, Ken's TV for a long time, uh, a health segment, uh, and, and his tagline at the end of every one of those segments was, remember the mind is powerful medicine. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I don't think people realize how powerful the mind is. What got you hooked on it? I, I think that when I was really studying immunology, I realized that, like I told you, we were developing this assay to look at natural killer cells mm -hmm. and how they could be affected. And so I started off basically from a very basic science perspective, and then that kind of led back to what influences this. You know, I mean, the other thing, just anecdotally, people get colds, they get flu, and they go, ooh, I wonder what caused this. And if you look back retrospectively in their life over the past prior two weeks, usually they've been under a great deal of stress, they haven't been sleeping right, they haven't been eating right, and then they get sick. And, I mean, almost every time I've gotten 
cold or flu, I can look back over the last two weeks and I can say, yep, that's why. Well, it's such a joy. It has always been a pleasure to work with you, Dr. Lewis. Um, and we appreciate all the work that you've done around the stress busting. For the caregivers who are listening, if you're interested in participating in a class, go to you can either go to caregiversos.org or caregiverstressbusters.org. Um, we're in, I think, 17 states now, Sharon. Uh, with I your- think it's six. <laughs> Is it, well, I think we've picked up one since last oh, week. Okay. Talk. So right, we're great. so we're we're growing. Um, and there's and, no cost for the program. Uh, for caregivers, there's absolutely no cost. So um, you know, check out caregiversos.org. Wow. Check out stress busting, uh, and we know it's a good program that'll work for you. And, and Dr. Lewis, we are sending best wishes to your air conditioner, conditioner and the repairman. <laughs> we hope it all comes together. And, and let us okay. know if you end up with a cold in two weeks. We'll know why. Okay, that's right. All right, thank you. Thanks so much. You did a great job, by the way. Thanks. Bye. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. She's fun to talk to. She, she knows so much about this. Well, she knows so much about it, and she was a thought leader. She was so far ahead of everybody else in stress management. Wow. Well, up next, guess what? Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Dr. Jamie Heisman will join us for Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to well, I'm at radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thanks so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10, a segment we bring to you at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs. We are joined by our co-host, Carol Zernio, and Dr. Jamie Heisman, who is a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addiction and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you got a good topic, which spins off what we did last week. Well, um, Jamie, you know, I think that there is confusion not just among caregivers, about the difference between what might be a person that has bizarre behaviors because they have Alzheimer's and dementia and someone that might have uh, bizarre behaviors uh, because they have a, a, a tradition, more traditional, quote-unquote, uh, behavioral health issue. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between someone who's suffering from a, a physical illness where your brain is shrinking like in Alzheimer's versus um, a behavioral health illness uh, where something else, a chemical imbalance may be going on. I don't know. You're the expert. What's the difference? Well, you know, neurologically and psychiatrically, we have two different, extremely different disease states, if you will. But you're right. The behavior from both can be quite similar. And to a caregiver, uh, when that behavior happens, they themselves have to learn new skills around it. 
But to your point, I think that it's really difficult to differentiate for a caregiver uh, the difference between dementia and mental illness. But for a, a medical professional, it's not. Dementia, like you said, it, it's it, more than your brain shrinking. It's like a chronic disorder with uh, a mental health pro- or the mental process, if you will, of uh, of, of the brain. It, 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 how do I say? It decompensates because of a brain disease or injury. So dementia. Presents itself in our senior population through like memory loss and in reasoning impairment and personality changes, where mental illness is, is a different uh, animal. In fact, in terms of treatment, obviously one would say which would be the more easier to treat, and it's the latter, mental illness. But mental illness, which is in one out of every five seniors, uh, is, is a lifetime issue. Normally. Believe it or not, many diagnosed in their in their teens or the, or the twi- or in their twenties. Um, obviously, later with depression and issues that surround it, they can be diagnosed there. But mental illness is is, is pretty much you know characterized by confusion, also loss of words, uh, memory impairment that looks just like a memory disorder. But instead, mental illness is about anxiety. It's about depression. It's about bipolar disorder. It's about schizophrenia. So the difference is, is quite stark in terms of a mental health professional, but in terms of a caregiver, it doesn't appear that different. So what I heard you saying is that if someone has a, a behavioral health problem like they're, bi- got, they're, they're bipolar um, versus having Alzheimer's, is there are medications that can treat someone with a, a behavioral health mental illness. Um, there's not a lot that can be done for someone that has dementia. Um, so would you go to the same type of doctor, would you go to the same type of facility for someone with a behavioral health problem versus dementia? No, you, you would not. Actually, you could go to a neurologist who's also boarded in psychiatry, so you have both under one roof. However, I really believe if you have mental illness and, and you're a senior, I would go straight to a psychiatrist. To your point, the pharmacology issue is so vast, the differences are so vast, exactly what you said. Bipolar, thought disorders, depression, anxiety are treatable. We've come so far in the world of of psychopharmacology uh, to be able to really stabilize this condition. Whereas, as you mentioned, in dementia and Alzheimer's, even though the Alzheimer's Association started in 1986, we've really yet to pharmaceutically or, or through pharmacology really address it properly. So you must get the first assessment, if you will, especially if you know it's mental illness, I believe, from a psychiatrist. However, if you really suspect dementia, I would go to a, a neurologist who may be boarded in psychiatry. Right. And so, and if you're dealing with an older person, it would be great if you had a geriatric psychiatrist. Um, neurologist Absolutely. may or may not have a specialty in geriatrics as well. Absolutely. That's kind of, I don't want to say scarce as hen's teeth, but like geriatricians, it's, it's less and less common. But you're spot on. I would make sure, as you did your homework and asked uh, for resources in the community, that it was geriatric focused in terms of the practice. Uh, they really get it. They really do. So now, are there, correct. Uh, tell us about the differences between an older person with a mental illness and a younger person. Why would you need a psychiatrist specialist in geriatrics? Well, again, I'm sure Carol can address this through her vast experience as a gerontologist, but I think when you see um, 
psychiatry, uh, you do see, as I said, maybe people who are predisposed, genetically predisposed. It's a biopsychosocial illness, and it may have started early on. However, the reason why you get a geriatric professional involved is that through the nor normal aging process as seniors, we do get anxiety and depression, and that really gets confused, if you will, with possible past issues. These are accompanying chronic disorders all along, uh, currently Carol and I are even talking about a patient education line for, for patients who find themselves with a chronic disorder, dealing with anxiety, dealing with depression, you know, dealing with this extreme fear and loss. So there's no question about it that a senior trained person or a gerontologist or a geriatrician or a neurologist who's trained specifically in geriatric medicine really will pick up on this in a, in a way that other neurologists and other psychiatrists may not. You're listening to Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. If you've just joined us, you're hearing Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. Carol? Well, I, the other difference is that uh, as older people um, absorb medications differently, the, the dosage, the prescriptions might be different. Uh, there are some medicines that you would give a younger person that you would never give an older person because they're so dangerous for falls uh, and you right. know, other other injuries. Um, but but I think it's uh, it's important to to point out to caregivers that there that there is this difference um, and that the prognosis is different. For example, we talked about we can treat the person with the behavioral health, but somebody with dementia, um, are, are, are they going to get better regardless of the medication? Exactly, exactly. And so I think when a caregiver sees their loved one who may be confused or may have a loss of words or even have mood swings, which, which mirror more you know, a mental health challenge, um, or even the memory impairment, because depression can bring on cognitive challenges as well, I would get a, an assessment immediately from a psychiatrist or from, a, a, as I said, a neurologist who, uh, who's trained in psychiatry. Either way, either professional will be able to pick up on whether this is common signs of dementia or whether there's really a, a mental illness here that can be treated as such. Well, and I would add that one of the joys of getting older is that you can have more than one thing going on at the same time, mm -hmm. so that someone who has had lifelong severe depression is actually probably more at risk of developing dementia, and you can overlay, you can have both at the same time. You can, and it happens so, yes, comorbidity it happens so often. In fact, as we're seeing now, you know, unfortunately, that you see less and less psychiatry out there and more and more primary uh, medicine physicians are prescribing. And so to your point, Carol, if we can really get focused and differentiate and really see our senior population in a very specialized way, especially through psychiatry and neurology, uh, we would be doing a great service. Because most primary care physicians don't really want to write the prescriptions uh, necessary for, for psychiatry, for sure. And we'll refer out to a good neurologist, anybody with dementia. So the good news might be um, support groups. Are there support groups for people that have, let's say, bipolar disorder and versus a support group for people that have Alzheimer's? Are there support groups up, out there for all these various conditions? For the care recipient and the caregiver? Yes. You, you both are needed. You're 100% right, Ron. You've done our show long enough to know that that's the vital piece. 
And to Carol's point, you know, care, I'm sure Caregiver SOS is a fabulous place to get those referrals. But, you know, I was on the board of NAMI, the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill. And these are families who have loved ones who have mental illness. And certainly if you got into a support group and you actually found out that your loved one, uh, you know, had more neurological issues, you would be able to, you know, exclude, if you will, yourself and find that right place. I would call the area agency on aging of your community and be able to really identify these support groups because we know in this program, the three of us, that there's nothing that can substitute for that support group. And, if, and if you're looking for your area agency on aging, go online to eldercare.gov and plug in your zip code and you will find It'll your local up. area agency. Dr. On Jamie, aging. thank you. Good information. Appreciate it. And thank you for your time. Carol Zerniel, thank you as well. I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.